Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Adrian Bloom, editorial director of the magazine, Bob Ferguson, president of Strategic Consulting, and joining us for the very first time today is Bailey Henderson, digital editor of the magazine. You may have heard us mention what a great job Bailey does researching and writing the daily news post to our website that we call for our news sections here on the podcast. So we thought that it would be great to have Bailey sitting with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Bailey. Thanks, Stacy. I'm excited to be here and uh, yeah, finally get to introduce myself to the audience. So yay, Bailey. Yay. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got the whole team assembled, and we're ready to tackle the year in review. And where we can, peek a little bit uh, ahead. When I wrote tackle, I thought I was thinking X's and O's, too. So I, I definitely, it's still, it's still football season. I got X's and O's on the brain. <laughs> um, so we, we think... And we hope that you agree that it's important to take a moment at the turn of each year to look back at the stories and topics that have moved and in some cases rocked the food safety world, not only through the lens of our media, but also through the movements made to the wider industry. And then look ahead at how these ongoing stories and concerns will likely continue to influence the food industry and, of course, most importantly, food safety. But before we get started as I do, I wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you, our dedicated global audience of food safety professionals. And the count this time is in 95 countries this year. You guys blow me away. We created this show for you. And we're so pleased that after more than five years of podcast, you are as engaged as ever. This year alone in 2022, there were a total of 62,000 episodes downloaded. That goes through the whole gambit of what we do. That was this year's, last year's, going back all the way to the very beginning. 62,000 episodes of Food Safety Matters were downloaded in 2022. It's, it's crazy. And just in case there are other metrics junkies out there besides uh, my compadres here, I know Bailey, Bob's raising his hand, Adrian, we, we do like them. There have been over 284,000 downloads, episode downloads since we started, which I don't even understand that. That's just such a big number. But anyway, apparently we're doing something right. <laughs> it's very gratifying. So thank you. We appreciate you so much. Um, but we know that this isn't just about us. It's really about the incredible guests that we're blessed to feature in our episodes. So our heartfelt thanks to all the guests that make time to be interviewed and who in many cases step out of their comfort zones to sit behind a mic and share their knowledge with our audience in order to assure public health through the discipline of food safety. Thank you one and all. We appreciate you guys so much. And, uh, and here we go. Okay, so... Buckle up, get ready, as we begin our review of some of the most influential and newsworthy topics of 2022. <laughs> Thanks, Stacey. So that was a great intro. And speaking of 2022, 
So we can't really talk about this year without addressing COVID-19 and the resulting supply chain fiasco. Uh, Those two things have been ongoing for the last several years now. And over the past two years, especially, the pandemic has basically exposed new weaknesses and made the business risks posed by this unstable supply chain very highly visible. You know, we've seen work shortages for essential roles. We've seen lots of turnover as we started to emerge from the pandemic as well. We've seen you know, local, regional, global supply chains affected. Uh, we've seen large swings in demand for products, price fluctuations, delays in transport and delivery. Um, we've also seen, because of all these things, a big shift from the mentality of this just-in-time inventory to just-in-case inventory as a way of preserving that flexibility in inventory that um, that suppliers and producers need. Uh, We've also seen intense audience interest in this topic all throughout the year. Isn't that right, Bailey? Yeah, definitely. I did some internet sleuthing um, because I'm a metrics junkie, like Stacy mentioned, and <laughs> to pull some numbers together on this. So that's why we knew we had to hire Ben. <laughs> um, we bonded right away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, supply chain, I found, was one of our top topics of the year, um, meaning that it was one of the story categories that had the highest number of page views on our website throughout 2022. Um, It's also worth mentioning that supply chain isn't a category with the most frequent article entries, so interest was definitely high for the topic. Plus, some of our most read articles of the year pertained to different aspects of the supply chain or supply chains, um, including supplier management and food defense. So uh, definitely seeing a lot of reader interest in coverage of supply chain and the ongoing issues. And our our coverage tends to be really high level and in-depth, too. I mean, we've had, so no, we're not doing hundreds of articles about it, but what we do has really been, been on point, so... I'm kind of bragging a little, all right. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing those stats with us, Bailey. It's it's nice to hear about you know what the audience has been interested in, and they've certainly been interested in this topic, as you mentioned. And you know, among the questions this leaves us with are, and and I'm going to draw Bob in here for some commentary, is you know how has all of this changed risk management for companies over the past few years with you know COVID nineteen and 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 the uh, supply chain and, and everything that's happened? What would you say about that, Bob? Yeah. When COVID first came out, a lot of people were talking about what's going to change permanently. And I think this issue of supply chain is one of the ones that's really going to change things permanently. What's the old saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link? Uh, COVID exposed a lot of um, weak links. And Adrian, the the number one thing I think we're going to see that you mentioned was this idea of just in time to just in case. So just in time is an efficiency model to try and reduce cost. If you have inventory or inventory of raw goods, raw materials or, or finished goods, um, you're, it costs money. It costs money in warehouses. It costs money in carrying costs, all these type of things. So that's been something that's been happening for decades to get all of those additional costs out. I think a lot of people now are looking at the risks that they saw during COVID and saying, wait a second, having that inventory cost is much more um, appropriate for us to do for business continuity. And so I think you're going to see the, the, the discussion go from saving money to uh, protecting the business and, and adding in more continuity. I think that's going to be a big thing. So you'll see people building warehouses, people holding more product. Uh, in some of the articles I wrote about people not buying sanitizers in five-gallon containers, but putting in 500-gallon tanks 
permanently in their facility. I think you're going to see those type of things that are going to permanently change. Mm-hmm. Um, another story that struck me um, was the idea that this that all the we- all the links in the chain have to be together or something doesn't work. One of the stories that sticks with me that I think is going to be uh, illustrative of, of how people are going to change thinking about this is there was a supplement company that had everything that they need. It was one of the few companies I talked to during the COVID that didn't have a problem with um, uh, employees being able to show up uh, with raw materials, with finished materials, good things like that. What they had, though, was they had everything they needed to make their product. And if you picture a supplement uh, coming in like a pill bottle, they had the bottles, they had the lids. But underneath the lids, there's a rubber seal that allows it to form an airtight seal. Those were made in China, and they didn't have those. They couldn't produce and ship their product because they didn't have that one seal. Now, I would guess, and I, when I was in manufacturing, had this problem before, it was probably a low-cost item. Nobody paid a lot of attention to it, but now people are going to go, wait a second. We need to pay more attention to every single one of these links because there's a risk there. I think that's what you're going to see a lot more conversation about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it took a lot of this stuff to, I think, bring into sharp focus just how much it can throw off an entire business if you don't have a tiny little rubber ring, right? Right, exactly. Um, so we're at the end of 2022 right now. You know, in reality, a lot of the COVID-19 mandates, protocols, and precautions have been, you know, largely reduced. Um, but the supply chain disruptions are still persisting in many ways. So where would you say, Bob, does this leave us in terms of planning and future risk management? Yeah. So again, this, this idea that risk is going to shift, shift from financial risk to continuity, I think that's really going to be a big thing. The other thing I would guess is you're going to see supply start to come closer to manufacturing. So if, if I'm having supply that's, that, that could be made closer to the manufacturer, the plant that's coming from, let's say, the other side of the world, I have a lot more risks in getting it here than if it's made local. I think you're going to see a lot more of that sort of local sourcing occur. Now, there are some things like spices that only grow in certain areas of the world that you're always going to have those issues. Um, so I think you're going to see that happening a little bit closer. The other thing I think you're going to have, which we've talked a bit in some of the articles, is a lot more suppliers. Again, it costs money to have primary suppliers and then a secondary supplier, but also a tertiary and, and so on. But I think you're going to see people saying, wait a minute, I did have maybe an 80-20 type model where 80% of my purchases go to one supplier and the other 20 is my backup. I think you're going to see some other model where you're going to have three or four different suppliers. That way, if there's any interruption or if there's a problem in shipping, uh, you'll have additional suppliers. That's going to cost money, but I don't think that the financials are going to have as much weight as continuity. I think that's a big thing you're going to see. The word continuity is going to keep coming around or redundancy, I think, are two catchwords you're going to hear more. Mm-hmm. And so what would you say, like kind of branching off of that, what would you say that companies are going to start focusing on now that we're starting to look at COVID in the rearview mirror? And, you know, do you think that these priorities are going to ch- to change or persist as supply chain wrinkles start to be ironed out into next year and, and the year after that? If I had to guess, yes, these are going to persist. This is going to become like just in time. Everybody kind of knows what it is and has talked about it for a long time, not necessarily uh, you know, studied it maybe, but rather than the focus on that, I think this is going to persist for a while. Now, 
human nature being what it is, you know, 10 years from now, people who maybe weren't involved in, in the pain that occurred with the supply chain during COVID, maybe looking back or not knowing what happened. And someone's going to say, wait a second, why do we have this warehouse? Maybe we shouldn't do that. And someone's got to step in and go, no, 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 here's why we do that. And that'll, that'll be interesting to see in the future how long it persists. But I think for the, for the foreseeable future, this is something that's going to be a permanent change in supply chain. And because of that risk and because of additional suppliers, I think it's also going to make a big difference in how we track supply chain. So traceability, which I know we're going to talk about and is being talked about frequently, um, the way you track your supply chain, software, AI, these type of things, I think that's going to change in the market uh, substantially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess that the one thing too that isn't directly supply biz workforce. Um, yeah. This, I think, is probably going to persist longer. It, it, it also, I think, has exposed kind of a bigger, a, a different kind of weakness, right? Um, how do you keep your, your workforce intact? How do you keep them engaged? How, you know, what's the training? What are the incentives? And then all of a sudden, you, you don't have workers because of, you know, the, the, the great resignation, people moving around, people's priorities have changed. The COVID has, has shaken everybody. Yep you know, to, to the core. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people are saying, well, how are we spending our time? What do we want to do? I think that is going to start to shift some of what's been lost. Uh, and I think very, uh, as far as support for professional development, um, and really taking in and, and, and nurturing talent, um, uh, I think people are, are really starting to take another look at that because it's so expensive to lose and retrain. Obviously, that has different impacts at different levels throughout the organization, but it is a real crisis. And people are also starting to look at, well, where's the next? We hear this a lot in relationship to the summit. Where's the next um, generation of food safety professionals coming from? Mm -hmm. Are we um, utilizing our pipelines through universities? Are we developing? Um, and, and where's the interest coming? Are people looking at food safety and food science? Uh, and I think there's there's some concern there uh, mm -hmm. about even how, how how what a pipeline we have uh, coming. So I don't think that we haven't solved that. That's not as, you know, Oh, let's just right. flip the switch from just in, just in time to just in case. It's kind of, I think, a more persistent problem. It's easier to build a warehouse than to solve that problem. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know, Stacey, you're absolutely right. And, you know, with regard to the workforce issues, of course, there's a whole supply chain full of, you know, workforce that we need to uh, address in terms of, you know, turnover or loss of skills, um, insufficient skills, things like that. But when we're looking specifically at food safety, one of the things that we're concerned about directly affecting food safety is that, you know, if we're seeing turnover, if we're seeing people leaving, you know, who are part of that body of knowledge of food safety technical skills um, mm -hmm. on on teams, you know, you get someone new in, you know, how do you make sure that they are properly trained or that they ha they're in incoming with that knowledge that they need to be able to, you know, keep your company or your organization up to standard, right? So that is a major concern. And it's actually something that I have been discussing with um, FDA in preparation for um, our third webinar in our FDA series that's going to be in late February on retail modernization. So we'll be having a little bit of discussion on that, um, mm -hmm. among many other things on that panel discussion. And that's a straight line to culture, too. Mm -hmm, exactly. 
exactly, which we'll also be addressing. We'll have more details on that upcoming, but um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely, you know, it's it's something, the workforce issues are something we definitely need to watch, um, you know, in our whole food industry supply chain, but especially in food safety because of that, you know, uh, need to preserve and carry on that essential knowledge and make sure that those, that knowledge and skills uh, is retained um, and kept up. So great, great comments all around everybody. So um, moving on to another topic that's received some attention and updates this year is FDA's agricultural water proposed rule. So we learned some new details about that during the year, uh, didn't we, Bailey? Yeah, so uh, FDA intends to implement subpart E of the produce safety rule, which is the FSMA proposed rule on agricultural water including the amended compliance dates issued in July, which are uh, January 26th, 2023 for most businesses, and January 2024 and 2025 for small and very small businesses. Um, the proposed rule will require farms to conduct annual systems-based agricultural water assessments to determine the necessary measures to minimize potential risks associated with pre-harvest agricultural water. Um, the assessments uh, include things like an evaluation of the water system, agricultural water use practices, crop characteristics, environmental conditions, potential impacts on source water by activities uh, conducted nearby on um, adjacent land, and other factors such as optional testing. Uh, farms would need to conduct pre-harvest agricultural water assessments annually, and whenever a significant change occurs that could uh, introduce hazards onto produce or food contact surfaces. So um, in March, FDA debuted an online agricultural water assessment builder tool to help farms understand uh, the different requirements of the proposed rule um, uh, and the agricultural water assessments under the ag water rule. So no announcement yet from FDA on uh, whether the proposed revisions to the rule will be passed, but, you know, we're on standby for that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so wait a minute, just as a point of clarification here, I'm wondering, this is a little confusing to me, FDA has not announced when the proposed revisions will be final. How can you comply with something that's not been finalized? Is it just me or is there a little bit of a disconnect here? Yeah, so Stacey, what we know from FDA and what we, they've issued so far on the proposed revisions uh, are that they're, they've issued uh, compliance dates that farms would need to um, adhere to once the revisions are finalized, which was anticipated to be either late this year or maybe early next. So maybe first half of next year is what we're looking at with this. But yes, there's a lot of detail on how farms can um, farms will be able to comply with the rule and when they would need, need to be compliant. Basically, it's going to get passed. It just hasn't been set in okay. stone yet. It's not been formally passed, but this is a pretty much a guarantee. Everybody's thing. expecting that right. it will be. Exactly. Okay. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. All right. Yeah. So, because January 26th, I mean, TikTok, you know, here we are. Right. So, right. I guess they're over there, they're, they're figuring, okay, so we're going to have to comply as it is stated now, just assuming that it's going to be finalized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Stacey, if you recall, this was this was put out as a rule and then pulled back and then rewritten. And, yeah, I mean, this has been, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, regarding this topic, we also spoke to uh, Kruti Ravalia, who's a consumer safety officer in the Division of Produce Safety at SIFSAN uh, during our 2022 Food Safety Summit in May. And she spoke about the ag water rule and how growers should kind of mostly view it as like a tool in their toolbox rather than an absolute requirement. Um, and how FDA plans to educate growers about compliance with the proposed rule updates. Um, you can actually hear that interview with Kruti in our podcast, episode number 125. And that also contains an interview with Dr. Conrad Chouanier of SIFSAN. Um, and also when we talked to Dr. David Atchison of the Atchison Group in the second half of this year about his thoughts on the new approach in the proposed ag water rule, he said that the biggest challenges for growers will be taking a part in understanding the nuances of what makes up the risks to their water supply. Um, Dr. Atchison believes that FDA will need to build some extensive and clear educational materials if it wants to educate before and while it regulates on this topic, which is something that FDA always says that it tries to do. So I thought those were two interesting uh, commentaries um, from our podcast guests this year. Well, and Bob has proposed that. Has FDA actually done that in regards to, to FISMA? He's asked that question in his surveys. Do you think that FDA is... And Bob, most people thought that they were, didn't they? Or it's 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 close to eighty percent now. It was the other way the first time we did the survey in twenty seventeen. It was the other way, but most people thought it was they weren't doing that. But apparently, FDA is being convincing. Yeah, yeah, they've come through. So that's that's a real positive change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now moving on to another one of our favorite topics and a big big topic, big topic. for big uh, this topic. year. <laughs> And uh, it will continue into next year. So it's been a big year in food safety culture. Now, the rise in food safety culture management and growth has seen a big leap ever since GFSI published its position paper, A Culture of Food Safety, back in 2018. Now, a lot has been written and presented on how to measure food safety culture, um, questions about if it should be regulated as part of food industry business in the U.S. as it is in Europe. And, you know, a lot of the questions are being asked about what are the signs of a successful or mature food safety culture. Just as a little note on that, um, in 2018, that GFSI uh, position paper um, one of the, the key authors on that is Lone Jesperson. I mean, at, there's a lot of people on it. So please, it's not just Lone. Lone would be the first one to say, not just me, everybody. Um, but in 2018, we did, uh, we did an ebook uh, with Lone, um, and, but then we, we published all the chapters uh, in, in Food Safety Magazine. So we've been working very closely as this has emerged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been watching this for, for a long time. Yes, absolutely. And we appreciate uh, Loan as a close contributor. And educating right. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously a continuing topic of interest and one that we'll continue to cover. Now, Bailey, I think you had some cool stats to share with us on what food safety culture has meant to our audience this year. Yeah, I found some fun little numbers um, related to food safety culture. So, um, it was the most searched term on our website in 2022, which is no big surprise, but shocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, our most popular article in the category of culture was handling customer complaints in food manufacturing from the April-May 2022 issue of Food Safety Magazine. This was also our fourth most read article out of everything we published in 2022, which for context hmm. is 
a lot of articles um, mm -hmm. and, you know, everything that gets put on our website um, and pushed out by us. So that was, you know, uh, a big, big deal. People were obviously very interested. Yeah. Um, but uh, even more interesting is that I ran a Google Trends analysis for the keyword food safety culture in the U.S. in 2022, which <clears throat> it's important to note that a Google Trends analysis reveals the search activity of the general public. So these stats aren't specific to our website, food-safety.com, but... Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, she's right there. I love it. I, she has not missed a beat. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Google Trends, um, you know, it's search, search volume throughout the entire U.S. just on Google. Um, so it revealed a huge spike in searches for the term food safety culture during the week of May 9th to 15th, 2022, specifically. By huge spike, I mean more than double any other spike that was seen in 2021 or 2022, and approximately three to four times more than the usual search volume for that keyword. So guess what happened during May 9th to 15th, 2022? <laughs> what was that week, Bailey? <laughs> what was that? I don't Drum roll. The Food Safety <laughs> Summit. So um, That's incredible. <laughs> I, it's, it's very interesting when you see that it's not just the month of May. It's May 9th to 15th, mm -hmm. 2022. That's crazy. So, uh, and this isn't, and just for clarity, this isn't our web stats. No. This is Google search Google. trends. And you can imagine, yeah. although this is, you know, search trends for everybody who's searching on Google, uh, the people who are searching food safety culture are going to be, um, for the yeah. most part, food professionals. So, um, you know, I'm not drawing any direct uh, causation here, but it's a fun little, uh, I think it's a fun little observation. Um, yeah. And, you know, it could make sense. So An interesting coincidence. Yes. Right. Mm. <laughs> Definitely very interesting. And, and <laughs> See, there's our section. I've been wanting to do this. You know, we have our before we go. I'm looking for... Hmm, section for the news. This is qualified. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, food safety culture was actually the focus of the keynote address at our 2022 summit this year. And that keynote was very cool. It included a panel discussion on commitment and collaboration in food safety culture. And we had representatives from FDA, uh, the DOJ, and uh, public supermarkets um, on that panel. So uh, very, it was very interesting um, keynote and we appreciated having those folks there i think we were the first to have anybody from doj i think you're right <laughs> first of all at uh, talking about food safety and then talking specifically they mentioned uh about how they take culture into account um yeah. mm -hmm. should something go terribly wrong so i thought that was very 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 interesting yeah yeah it, was, it definitely was and so food safety culture is, again, going to be a focus of the summit's 2023 keynote, which will be moderated by Lone Jesperson of Cultivate and focus on the question of how executives can balance risks within their organization for the safety of consumers, their team, members, and the environment. So um, definitely keep a lookout for information about our keynote next year because it's going to be a big one and we hope to yeah, see you I there. Think it's next level. I'm very, when Loam was explaining to us what it is that she's uh, uh, going for in this, I'm, I'm very, very excited because I think it's taking culture to a, a whole nother, a whole nother level. So mm -hmm. leave it to Loam. Yep. And, oh, and Food Safety Summit and Food Safety Magazine were right in there. I love the company we keep. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, aside from the summit where we do so much work on food safety culture, we've also addressed culture through many articles and webinars and podcasts in Food Safety Magazine throughout the year. Just a few. Yeah, just a few. Um, we featured an article series on different mindsets in food safety culture in five world regions. That was by Lone Jesperson and, and her co-authors that ran in the e-magazine throughout 2022. Um, we held a webinar in August on food safety culture and functional ways of working. That was moderated by Lone as well with um, great executives from Birchwood Foods, Blue Apron, and Arla Foods. Um, that's on demand. If you want to go back and watch it, just go ahead and look up on our webinars page on our website. Um, we also welcome new contributors on food safety culture, including Jill Stuber and Tia Glave of Catalyst LLC. They've written and spoken to our audiences about leadership and team strength and how these subjects intertwine with having a strong food safety culture. Um, we really appreciate their contributions, and they have been uh, wonderful to work with and um, given us a lot of really great, mm -hmm. given our audience a really a lot of really great insight on food safety culture, um, team strength, and leadership. So we appreciate all of that. And we've also welcomed new resources for industry on food safety culture from prominent nonprofit groups and regulatory agencies. So, for example, in June, we saw Stop Foodborne Illness launched a free science-based online food safety culture toolkit for small and medium-sized companies to help them identify and improve culture at their organizations. And uh, FDA and Stop Foodborne Illness have also been hosting their own series of webinars on food safety culture throughout the year, which they'll continue into 2023, including one of those webinars that they'll broadcast live from our Food Safety Summit in Rosemont, Illinois in May. So that'll be very exciting. And uh, another thing we've heard recently from FDA on food safety culture is they conducted a scientific literature review on current knowledge in culture under the new era for smarter food safety blueprint. Now, the researchers kind of sought to define certain questions such as what is food safety culture, how is it developed and maintained, and how is it assessed? So um, very interesting literature review that they did there. Uh, we wrote an article on it on the web. You can find, find that there. We also put a link to the paper that they issued uh, post that literature review, so you can read more about that. And uh, last but not least, we'll also be holding our fourth New Era webinar with FDA on the subject of food safety culture on April 19th. That'll feature Dr. Conrad Chouanier and Dr. Donald Prater, who are the two team leads for this New Era element, as well as representatives from industry. Well, and Frank will be on that too, won't he? Oh, yes, absolutely. Frank Giannis will also <laughs> be on. Frank Giannis. Frank Giannis will also <laughs> oh, be yeah. on that webinar. Oh, and by the way, Frank Giannis. <laughs> right. Frank Giannis will also be on that webinar. So keep an eye out for more information on that early next year. We will be excited to have you attend that live webinar with us. Well, you can see, I mean, we've done so much. This is such a deep and, I mean, culture. Everybody knows who's, you know, if you work, you <laughs> your business has a culture. Cultures are so hard to change, um, just in general, to set, maintain, or and, and like I said, to change. To change a culture is just... Um, really painstaking. It takes it takes that top down, bottom up, middle out. It, it takes everybody uh, to do that. And, uh, and then when you look at food safety, um, you know, the drivers um, identifying this as something uh, that will drive um, safer, you know, food for, uh, for consumers is huge. Um, 
having that then integrated into audits, you know, I'm trying to think of like, what are the drivers, you know, having that integrated and now having DOJ talk about it. Um, it's here to stay. When I, when I talk to some of the folks who've been around food safety for a very long time, I get a little side eye <laughs> on culture. Um, it's, it's hard, but I, I always point to loans maturity model um, because I think that, that it does have um, implications there that you can see uh, where a company is and, and how you're dealing with food safety. Is it, is it really reactive or are you being proactive? Is this something that you're trying to drive through? Um, but it also is imperative um, that top, that the top, you have to have the buy-in from the top because, you know, along with the side eye that I've gotten from people is, you know, the real world stories of how things actually go out there. Um, sales will come up with an idea and, you know, just communication, right, mm-hmm. um, within a company and who's driving uh, things and how quickly and is food safety, are the food safety teams brought into that? And I think one of the things that Loan's going to be addressing in that uh, keynote is how food safety professionals really need to integrate themselves into all of the different teams. It's imperative. You can't just sit back and go, how come they're not talking to me? How come I'm not included in this? Mm-hmm. And I'm being, you know, hyperbolic here, so please, no judgments. But, you know, to be really proactive and say, how can we target people and where are the important teams to target and make yourself a part of that and integrate food safety into those decisions, that creates culture too. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really interesting you mentioned that because uh, we had Larry Keener actually talked about some similar subjects in a recent eDigest article that he did for us on the mechanistics of selling food safety and how you as a technical food safety person have to sell food safety mm-hmm. to corporate leadership, but how you also need to understand the business and integrate yourself into That's different right. teams um, before you can do that successfully. Really interesting article. I recommend everybody look that up. Yeah. We'll put that in the link to the show notes as well. <laughs> Larry's been writing about the ROI of food safety mm-hmm. since, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> since I've known him um, and the fact that you need to understand, you need to be able to sell it as a part of, of the financial picture, uh, you know. I can't help but add a comment that there's a hundred reasons why you want to incorporate food safety culture and have the intangible things that maybe can't be written down, everybody pulling in the right direction, all those type of things and the impact they'll have. But when someone from the DOJ says that they have latitude in how they prosecute these cases when it does happen, to me as a CEO, if someone who's a CEO might say, well, that might be the difference between me having a chance to correct a mistake or getting carried out in handcuffs. And so if that doesn't sort of get your attention, mm-hmm. uh, wow, you need, to, you need to rethink what you're looking at. Because when, when he said that at the summit, I just, I remember seeing like, yeah. everybody needs to hear that loud and clear. Yeah. Well, I think it goes a lot to, it's like with any other, quote, crime, you know, right. what is your state of mind? Where, was it, what, what is your intent? Right. And um, goes to intent, if you're, exactly. If you're showing that you're doing everything in your power, um, that. Culture goes a long way to show that. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of leading into our next topic, speaking of repercussions when things go wrong. So another one of the biggest stories in the food safety world during the year, and one that was closely followed by our audience as well, um, was the 
infant formula crisis. Now, starting in February, the FDA issued a warning on powdered infant formula produced by Abbott Nutrition in response to consumer complaints of Cronobacter Sakazaki infections in infants. Now, Abbott initiated a voluntary recall, and FDA led an investigation into the company's plant in Sturgis, Michigan, although no link could be established between the infants who died or others that were sickened after consuming formula that was produced at the Sturgis plant um, through sampling and testing the Cronobacter strains taken from the victims and those strains that were found at the plant. Now, this recall led to a nationwide shortage of infant formula since the Sturgis plant produces around a quarter of the powdered infant formula used in the U.S. So FDA worked with other manufacturers and Abbott to fix the supply situation and get the Sturgis plant back online, but the shortages of infant formula have persisted. FDA also released a temporary enforcement discretion guidance to help other manufacturers of infant formula determine if their products were adequate to fill the supply gap. Ultimately, the Senate mandated FDA to take action to better ensure the safety and supply of the nation's infant formula supply through the FDA SLA Act, which was passed in June. Now, following this, FDA also conducted an internal review of the incident management that resulted in key findings and recommendations to help FDA respond more quickly during a public health emergency such as this one. The review also concluded that no single action can explain the events that occurred and that the crisis occurred due to systemic vulnerabilities. Now, we actually spoke to the FDA incident command manager for the investigation in into the Cronobacter illnesses and the infant formula recall on our podcast. That was episode number 130 with Kim Livesey, who's a senior emergency response coordinator in the Office of Regulatory Affairs. Now, Kim talked about the achievements that she and her team marked, as well as the challenges they faced over the seven weeks of this investigation. She noted that it was a difficult case because of the vulnerability of the target group in this, in this investigation, and because the links between sample results from victims and the samples tested from the plant did not, in, in fact, match. Now, the latest news to come out about this crisis is the outline of a prevention strategy from FDA to prevent Cronobacter Sakazaki contamination of powdered infant formula in mid-November. This strategy also proposes that Cronobacter Sakazaki infections among infants be elevated to a nationally notifiable disease. So, Bailey, you had some comments to share on the growing audience interest in this topic, right? Yeah, I actually have some pretty fascinating data for this topic that begs some questions. Um, and I'm not here to answer those questions. I'm just here to raise them. So uh, again, I went to Google. Just ask. <laughs> yeah, you guys have the answers. <laughs> so I went, um, I went to Google Trends again and uh, you know ran analysis for infant formula as well as infant formula shortage, two different keywords, because infant formula shortage was revealed to be a popular related search to infant formula, obviously. So um, remember, Google Trends reveals search behavior of the general U.S. public. Uh, so this isn't just food safety professionals. This is who are a small minority of these search terms. Mm -hmm. um, so... What I found fascinating was the peak interest in infant formula and infant formula shortage was during the month of May by far. The average search volume for infant formula was 
to 91% higher during May than during the rest of the year. Similarly, for infant formula shortage, interest was 89 to 100% higher in May than the rest of the year. So what's shocking about that being during the month of May is that the month of May is when FDA allowed Abbott to resume production. So Mm -hmm. why didn't the spike in interest occur in February when FDA issued a warning for Abbott powdered infant formula and the company issued the voluntary recall, um, you know, when the danger was most imminent? Um, So just using the Google Trends data to gauge the general public's awareness of and interest in this topic, um, yeah, it raises that question. Was the public really so much more aware of the recall in May than in February when the public health danger was most imminent? And if so, why? Um, You would think that concerned consumers, parents would be much more interested in the topic of infant formula in February than May if they were aware of the warning and the recall. They want to protect their babies. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and (laughs) infants, they're such a vulnerable population. So, Obviously, this single piece of data might not reflect the complete picture of public awareness, but it is Google, (laughs) Um, and it still provides some insight and raises some question marks about the efficacy of communicating warnings about unsafe foods and recalls, perhaps. Um, Yeah, so just uh, something that, you know, to me was a little bit, uh, you know, um, shocking, and I'm just over here connecting um, strings on on a map of different pieces of data, so... I think it points to the difficulty in communicate food safety communication. I mean, it is very hard. Uh, it's one thing to get people aware. It's another thing to have them really understand what it means. Um, it's funny because you mentioned May. I Because we're getting to another story later that talks about some other stuff. But one of the things that also happened in April was our friend Helena... Uh, Bot mm-hmm. Miller Evich mm-hmm. dropped her bombshell mm-hmm. uh, on FDA's food failure. Uh, a lot of that was driven by this crisis. So I think that maybe between then and then, what we have is is an increased awareness and education on the part of consumers. Perhaps mm-hmm. I'm just just saying because, mm-hmm. like you, I'm kind of going hmm. Uh. Right. It could have been some right. of the sensationalism, you know. Uh, you know, I think among people, um, you know, not only by that reporting, but then also people saying, oh, what, they're restarting this plant? You know, I can't believe yes. that. So people go to search it. That That's what I was thinking. But you're right, Stacey, bringing up the publication of that expose is a very yeah. interesting point. And I think that that, that, you know, percolating in the public's awareness combined with, you yeah. know, why are they restarting this plant? Wasn't that the problem? Maybe those right. two things were what um, it was a really huge drove part of that the, report that she did. Right. And I think, uh, and, and while, you know, my first response to, you know, oh, and I'm, I may be like stealing my thunder for later in the program, but, you know, the, um, the bombshell for people in the industry was not that. And I had tried, because I think that the bombshell was really in public awareness. Mm-hmm. I think that people inside the industry, certainly people within government, people within FDA, there was these things, people were aware of. We've been aware of this for a long time, but the fact that, that the, that the, you know, the curtains were pulled back for the public and made more accessible, certainly made accessible through the lens of a very, our most vulnerable population, Mm -hmm. (laughs) babies, Mm -hmm. right? If we can't protect babies, right? right? And so I think there's a certain amount of outrage 
maybe a big word. Um, it really po- po- posed a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that kind of leads me to my first question for, you know, Bob and Stacy here is what do you think that we in the food safety community have learned from all of this? How much time do we have? I think there's a list of a <laughs> hundred or something well, like that. Well, the clock is running, but share your thoughts. Well, so so for, from a technical standpoint, everyone's looking at the Sturgis facility, but like Adrian, like you mentioned, uh, there, there's no real root cause that's been identified. There's nothing that tracks it yeah. back to the facility. Now, that doesn't mean that the facility was was perfect. But the other thing for anybody in food safety and particularly anybody in senior management, if I remember the number right, Abbott's currently going to build a $500 million new facility because Mm -hmm. of this, even though there's not a smoking gun specifically. So you don't necessarily have to have something that that points directly to this where it becomes a serious business issue as well as a serious food safety issue. The other thing I find fascinating about this is that we always talk about uh, tracing these outbreaks. And one of the things that's always difficult that you'll hear, we've talked to the CDC about this, is finding out what the food source was because adults eat a variety of foods, so you have to find out what it was that was causal. The one thing about this one, though, is that babies eat one type of food, so it should be easy to trace it back, but we still had a hard time finding that cause, that the, the root cause, even with a single food. Uh, on another topic with this is the president has been talking about the fact that there are too few producers. There's a market concentration here so that you only have a few suppliers. You've said the same thing about beef and other issues. If the federal government gets more involved in saying, listen, we want a more diversity of suppliers so that we don't have these supply chain issues. There's that supply chain word again. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have these issues, that's going to change the structure of industry um, throughout. So it's going to be interesting to see where a lot of these threads go. We're going to talk about another thread with the Reagan Udall investigation as well, but there's a lot to this. There, there, this is a mm-hmm. deep subject. Well, and one of the things too, um, in, in getting ready, or actually this morning looking at LinkedIn, I saw that a Stop Foodborne Illness had again posted their petition to put Cronobacter Sakazaki on the um, reportable food list. And that would have a huge impact on this, right? So if it's on the list, now it's been proposed. So for people who want to help further this, you know, go and sign up and and, and sign the petition because it's not done yet. It's been proposed and I I can't imagine that it won't happen, but that will um, speed up uh, the reporting, it will speed up the response uh, uh, on, on things like this going forward, I think, and have an impact. Gives the CDC a lot more data to work with and to have a better view of what's actually going on here. Exactly. In a quicker time. Yeah. And, Much, and yep. speeds up there. It starts their clock. Yeah. Yep. Right. Starts the clock. Yep. Starts the clock. So, you know, Bob and Stacey, how would you say that this whole infant formula crisis has impacted the view of FDA's capabilities, you know, especially in light of the Reagan-Udall review, which we will get into more in depth later. But, you know, just in general, how would you say it's impacted, impacted the view on FDA's handling and capabilities? In, in both cases, from the, the case of uh, the supply of, of infant formula and the FDA, you could say that before this occurred, we were humming along thinking everything was just operating fine. And this exposed a whole bunch of weaknesses all throughout. And some of the things that they said about the FDA and the communications and the mailroom, we don't need to go over all that again. But you know, there are some areas that really needed to be tightened up that needed to, in order to respond to this. So we have a lot of technology that helps us get to 
oftentimes the root root cause of what's happening, but still it's, it's people that have to work together and make sure they're communicating to have that response. So I, I find that to be really interesting. I think the report we're going to discuss was, uh, was quite uh, blunt about what happened at the FDA. And I think there's probably some fundamental changes that need to be made there, but it did, it did expose a lot of weaknesses in the system that you otherwise you know, may not have presumed were there. I think there was also a little bit of a, a precursor to this, which is the heavy metals in baby food um, uh, that 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 happened last year, I believe, uh, and and uh, Dr. Conrad uh, Schwanier talks about that in in his episode as well because he's very involved there. Um, another great interview by Adrian. But I think that, again, that goes to our most vulnerable populations, right? right? And protecting that. And if we're getting heavy metals in baby food, what else is in our food? And I think it just, you know, it points to what what are we managing and how are we managing it? And, and I think public interest and it, it demanded, uh, it demanded a response. It demands a response. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Looking at another big story from the year was USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, or FSIS, addressing salmonella in poultry. Now, the year's first big movement from FSIS came in August when it announced its plan to declare salmonella as an adulterant in breaded and stuffed raw chicken products. Now, the reasoning for that was that breaded and stuffed raw chicken products are of particular concern because they've been linked to 14 foodborne illness outbreaks and about 200 illnesses since 1998. And also, they may appear cooked to consumers since they're located often in the freezer section of grocery stores. Now, the next big news, and this was big news, came when FSIS released a comprehensive proposed regulatory framework in mid-October for reducing salmonella illnesses from consumption of all poultry products. Now, this framework would comprise three key components. It would require salmonella testing for incoming flocks prior to entering an establishment. It would also require enhanced process control, monitoring, and FSIS verification. And it would implement an enforceable final product standard. Now, this last component would declare salmonella an adulterant in finished product, but it's a little unclear yet if only certain serotypes would be selected for this classification or if it would apply to all salmonella serotypes. Now, FSIS intends to finalize this proposed framework by mid-2024, and the agency is seeking additional comments from stakeholders on how to strengthen each component, if there are any gaps in the framework, and any relevant factors for the approaches outlined for each component. Now, we also had the chance to speak on the podcast with Sandra Eskin, who's the Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA and the head of FSIS, about this proposed framework. That episode, which is number 134, which just came out on December 13th, is packed with information on FSIS's scientific approach to the framework, uh, how they envision pre-harvest intervention requirements working, what kind of testing and data sharing they plan to require, and how they plan to address stakeholder concerns, just to scratch the surface of that interview. So we highly recommend a listen to this episode if you want to find out more on this topic and the agency's plan for salmonella in poultry. Also this year, we featured an excellent three-part series of articles by professors of poultry science at the University of Georgia on routes of salmonella contamination of poultry 
along with suggested pre-harvest and processing interventions to reduce salmonella contamination. I think it's a very insightful series of articles, so we suggest you check that out also. Now, Bailey, do you have any info to share about our audience interest in salmonella this year? For sure. So salmonella was definitely a topic of interest to our audience this year. Um, it was the fourth most searched term on the website. Also, our three-part series uh, that you mentioned, Adrian, was pretty popular. Um, <clears throat> part one was the 17th most read article of 2022, and part two was the 37th most read. That's pretty great considering this is out of, um, you know, thousands of articles. So uh, the third part of the series only just came out with our latest December-January issue, but I'm excited to see how that article does after it has had some time to circulate. But bringing it back to Google Trends, my best friend, um, uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting to see what the general public thinks of these topics in comparison to food safety professionals, um, you know, the people that we're protecting. Um, there's a huge spike in searches for salmonella during May 22nd to 28th, 2022. <clears throat> so this was surprising to me. Um, as someone who spends my days writing and reading about food safety, because I fully expected interest to peak in October. I logged on to Google Trends and I was like, October. Um, and that's not what I saw. Um, <clears throat> you know, because the proposed framework came out from FSIS um, during the month of October. <clears throat> but when I looked into it a bit further, I saw the big GIF peanut butter recall due to... Um, product contaminated uh, with salmonella happened during the week that we saw a spike in searches. So the general public's interest was different than our audience's interest. Our coverage of the GIF recall wasn't a popular article, despite salmonella being a hot topic of 2022, whereas coverage of the proposed framework, other regulatory news, and educational content dealing with the pathogen were much more popular. One of the, was one of the spikes from uh, when we were at IAFP and uh, Sandra Eskin made all that news by like even announcing that, uh, so that was in August. Um, I would have thought that one of the first spikes would have occurred then. Yeah, I would have, ha uh, I would have, I would have to pull uh, the trends back up. But it wasn't, but it wasn't what you identified. Yeah, I okay. didn't, I didn't yeah. notice it in August. I, um, yeah, I really just so saw So that's probably man. still a little inside baseball, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, but we were certainly... Um, you know, I came back from that. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, USDA is making news. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting perspective. Yeah. One area clearly where, you know, what the what consumers are interested versus food safety professionals diverged yeah. on the, the Google the yeah. Google search analytics. <laughs> Well, um, salmonella being, you know, declared, uh, the possibility of it being declared as an adulterant is pretty big news. Yes. Right. I don't yes. think it gets, you know, very, very big news for industry. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Bob, I know you had some comments to share on how this is going to change the market and testing and, and things like that, right? Well, Stacy started the podcast by saying we're going to talk about stories that rocked the food safety industry. <laughs> this is going to be certainly one of those. And and I know the rule is about the breaded and raw and stuffed raw chicken, but it's going to be much more impactful than breaded and raw stuffed chicken. Um, one of the things is, first off, is salmonella and adulterant. We're talking about that. That makes a lot of differences um, with the the requirement to quantify the uh, the chicken coming into the plant. Quantification testing is not something that's been done. It's really been presence absence. So that's going to change a lot of the testing business. A couple of number of companies are already working on that. But whoever is most innovative will be the ones that succeed and survive. So I think we'll see a, tr a change in the structure of the testing business. 
The other thing about this is, Adrian, what you mentioned before about the serotypes. If it turns out that Salmonella species is the adulterant, then some of the existing testing will still be adequate for doing that. If it turns out it's serotyping, I think you're going to see a move from some of the common testing like PCR and immunoassay, moving it on to next-gen sequencing or maybe even more whole genome sequencing. And that has a significant change in how the testing will be done. First off, I'm not sure the market has the capacity to do that level of sequencing. Maybe just in chicken, they could pull that off. But I think that's also going to pick some winners and losers in the market as far as uh, that goes. So those type of things, as far as changing the type of diagnostic that's required to meet these rules, is going to have a significant impact on the testing business without question. I think two, three years from now, if this turns out the way we're talking about it turning out, I think you're going to see a whole different maybe set of players or certainly a new set of technologies. Well, I think that it's a game changer, just like when, you know, E. coli was declared an adulterant. Right. But, and, and also, there's, it has to be by serotype. I mean, they're not just going to go broadly, because just reducing salmonella, they saw, did not reduce uh, uh, illness. Right. So we, we want to focus on, um, you know, eliminating illness associated um, with, with salmonella. So I think that, you know, just like with STEX, they 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 drilled down and said, okay, what do we need to, to control? And we'll, we'll see how long and, and how this progresses uh, like that. And when we're talking about uh, one of the things um, that comes up in talking to our editorial advisors and, and Larry Keener, he, he reminded me and then uh, kind of publicly on LinkedIn was like, don't forget Campylobacter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and there's some. There was an article that came out, and he's like, "Stacy, this is exactly what we were talking about." Um, but uh, so, he, you know, lots, to, lots to keep keep our eye on. I, I, I still don't necessarily see that in the data. I mean, it seemed to me that Salmonella uh, out outperformed campy <laughs> but uh, uh anyway i might be changing the subject here but uh, this is certainly a game changer and we will see how this uh um see how it plays out no question mm -hmm. yep we're going to be seeing a lot of interesting developments with this over the following uh couple of years here so looking ahead now, traceability has been a hot topic this year as well. Now, tech-enabled traceability is an ongoing initiative under FDA's new era of smarter food safety. And the final traceability rule, which was mandated by Congress as, as part of FISMA Section 204, was published on November 21st. Now, the food traceability rule requires companies that manufacture, process, pack, or hold foods listed on the food traceability list to maintain records, including key data elements related to critical tracking events. Now, this food traceability list includes things like fresh cut fruits and vegetables, shell eggs, nut butters, as well as ready-to-eat deli salads, cheeses, and seafood products. But another aim of the final traceability rule is to encourage the voluntary adoption of these tracing records for all food products among industry. Now, as part of our FDA New Era webinar and podcast series, we held a webinar on November 29th with Frank Giannis, um, Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy and Response, Captain Carrie Irvin, who heads up the New Era tech-enabled traceability team, Katie Vierk, who leads the rule writing team, as well as Angela Fernandez from GS1 US, and Ed Tracy from IFPA's Produce Traceability Initiative. And during that webinar, the panelists discussed the details of the traceability rule and how 
companies will be expected to comply by the January 2026 deadline, as well as just the greater need for transparency and traceability in the food chain to improve the efficiency of recalls and the supply chain in general. They also discussed technology pathways for achieving better traceability in the supply chain. It was a great panel discussion, and certainly this will be an ongoing topic of concern over the coming months and years as industry adopts the rule. So we highly recommend registering to view the webinar on demand if you haven't already checked it out. So Bailey, I know you had a couple of stats to share about that traceability webinar we held on November 29th, right? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the traceability webinar was actually um, the highest attended uh, FSM webinar to date, which was awesome. And it also had the highest registration rate as well. Registrants included professionals from all levels of industry, um, from FSQA professionals to consultants to CEOs and executives and everybody in between, um, as well as regulatory compliance officers, students, and more. So it was really cool to see um, the the variety in um, perspectives um, in the audience. <clears throat> um, and while I have the mic, <laughs> I thought it would be fun to mention another little statistic <laughs> from Google Trends. Um, can you guess when the keyword food traceability saw its biggest spike in search volume during 2022? Any guesses? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is a push-pull here. Uh, drum roll. Um, it was the week of the Food Safety Summit, Ooh, um, wow. where traceability was a hot crazy. topic. Yeah. Um, and yeah. food traceability is a very specific search term. I can assume... Um, pretty safely, I think that most people searching for food traceability are uh, industry or industry adjacent. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not saying um, uh, cause causation, but uh, it's an interesting little clinky dink. Yeah. So. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, say causation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe correlation does equal causation in this right. case, Bailey. <laughs> we're just gonna, we're just gonna put it out there. But um, you know, it, it's interesting because. Um, I like that that we have that stat because we featured this really cool interactive workshop on traceability at the summit in 2022 that was led by Mark Mormon, who's the director of the Office of Food Safety for CIFSAN, and also Andrew Kennedy, who's the New Era Technology Team Lead at FDA for traceability. Now, I was in attendance for that workshop, and it was pretty insightful. So Mark and Andrew asked participants to assemble a plan for tracing and tracking the movement of food products in their organizations. And this was a really interesting thought exercise for a lot of the industry folks there, especially because this was well before the final rule was released. So basically kind of just putting it, putting this in people's heads, like how would you do this if you had to do this at your company? And um, there were some wildly varying results. So clearly, you know, guidance in the form of a rule is, is uh, was a good thing to, uh, to have out there. Well, to say that the, um, that the final rule was, you know, widely and wildly anticipated by industry would, I think, be an understatement. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, in a way, it's all anybody's been talking about since the new era uh, came out, and it was, it was part of uh, the new era of smarter food safety. So a lot of anticipation. And and we once again, I just thank you so much to the folks at, at FDA for working with us and getting that that webinar, our our webinar. We were so proud, you know, got out right before, right after the rule was um, 
uh, released and made final, but before FDA had done their, you know, three-hour conference call uh, and presentation on it. So anyway, we're just so grateful for our partnership there. It's been so important uh, for industry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah, of course, wildly anticipated uh, the release of that rule because it is going to affect so much having to do with processes and workflows and I mean, you know, what companies, what data and companies expensive and, uh, are responsible for furnishing. So yes, yeah. absolutely. But you know, along those lines, we're also planning to offer a traceability workshop at the 2023 summit. And this is going to be cool. So that will explore how companies can establish robust and compliant traceability programs. So this workshop will help familiarize companies with the requirements for the final traceability rule and how to set up and execute your own traceability programs. I think it will certainly look different from the 2022 workshop now that we have the published rule in front of us. So make sure to register for that workshop at foodsafetysummit.com. I think this is going to be a really interesting workshop and certainly a very helpful helpful one for, um, for the industry folks out there that uh, need to get started on this and have not already. Yeah, you know, um, as you were talking about that and thinking back to our webinar, probably the thing that made the biggest impression on me as far as how do you uh, even begin to address traceability? How do you even begin to start setting up these systems? And I think it was Ed Tracy, because he had experience with this in the in the past, that he offered... Um, to not try and approach it as a separate thing. It's like, okay, now we're going to do traceability and we're going to impose another layer on onto something. I mean, that's probably not the right way of saying it. We're going to build another system separate, an, a separate system that we're going to bolt on. And he said, no, look for the systems that you already have in place that you can add that you can weave traceability into mm-hmm. uh, so that it's more of a, uh, it's part of what you're already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was a, a, a straighter line and a, and a quicker and, and, and a financially more feasible way to approach how to achieve traceability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, Bob, I know this is another one of those subjects that, you know, we've, we've spoken in, in the background of these podcasts about how this changes everything. And I know you're going to have some upcoming, uh, data on this for us, aren't you? Yeah. Adrian, yeah, I know. I owe you the article. You don't have to bring it up here. I'll get it to you soon enough. Uh-huh. Now, uh, I, I do have an article coming out on traceability and what people are thinking about the new rule, um, like as Adrian mentioned in the February-March issue. Um, looking at the preliminary data, what I'm seeing is curious so far is a majority of people think that they're ready and they have a good handle on their traceability. A majority of people think that they could respond to an FDA request and get them the traceability information they need within 24 hours. And if that is, if that proves to be the case, I think that's a really, really good sign for the industry. If it proves that people believe that and maybe they don't have what they need to do this, you know, that may be a, a risk sign. But I'll find out more as I dig into this and get a chance to talk to some of the respondents. And that'll all be in the article with, um, with more charts and graphs and, and data and numbers. <laughs> So that we love oh, that. I love a chart. <laughs> <laughs> We're big nerds here. Yeah. Right. We love our charts. We love our data. And Bob, that's super fascinating. And I'm, uh, you know, I am wildly anticipating uh, the draft of your article because I'm super <laughs> excited to read what you've found out here and see what companies have been telling you about their preparedness for the adhering to the traceability rule. So. Uh, definitely uh, be looking forward for that. And then that will be appearing in the February, March, 2023 issue, as Bob said. So our last topic 
for the review of 2022. Can't believe it's here already. But um, our last topic that we want to discuss is the Reagan Udall Foundation review of the FDA's human foods program, which is not only timely since the results of that review just came out in early December, but also this really has the ability to shake things up at the FDA. So to briefly rewind, back in July, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf asked the Reagan Udall Foundation to conduct an external review using an independent panel of experts of the Human Foods Program. That includes the Office of Food Policy and Response, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, and relevant parts of the Office of Regulatory Affairs. It didn't include the Center for Veterinary Medicine, which many in the industry and scientific communities were unhappy about, but it remained that the Center for Veterinary Medicine was excluded. Now, the decision to conduct this review rose out of the infant formula chronobacter outbreak and supply crisis that started in February. Now, as explained in the Reagan Udall Foundation's December 6th report, the expert panel found that the culture of the human foods program inhibits FDA's ability to effectively protect public health. It blamed the program's lack of clear vision and mission, disparate structure, lack of communication, reliance on consensus decisions to take regulatory action, and the lack of an ultimate authority to oversee the entire program for all of these problems. Now, another big issue is that ORA's implementation of policies and fieldwork is mostly independent of CISAN, which is responsible for developing and writing the policies that are then discharged using ORA funding. So clearly there's a mismatch here between those two uh, areas of FDA. Now, the report addressed four major areas for improvement within the human foods program, culture, structure, resources, and authorities. The panel made a number of critical recommendations within each area, including some urgent recommendations related to increasing staffing and salaries, raising funding, improving information sharing with states, and making records requests from food companies in advance of or instead of an inspection and to help avoid shortages. Now, in response to the Reagan Udall Foundation's report of its review, Dr. Califf suggested that FDA's new vision might include restructuring the human foods program and its leadership, identifying new sources of funding, advancing the agency's critical inspection activities, and upgrading its digital technology systems. So with that set out there, and that's the short version of what this uh, report had to say, <laughs> the very, job the very <laughs> short version of what this report had to say. Now, yeah. my question to you all is, with these results, would you say overly critical or no? And, you know, what about a, a proposed split of the FDA to focus on, you know, one division, only food, one division, only medical? Is that a likely eventual outcome? I hope so. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's what I'll say about that. The the mm -hmm. the F and FDA, right? Right. Well, uh, yes. that was the thing. We don't want that it to be silent. Me, yeah. Right. The silent. That's the silent the, F. The, that the F is silent in FDA. So um, hopefully that that could change that. I think that that structural change right there, and and there's a great oh a great chart <laughs> uh, in the report that shows that structure going from the commissioner down to um, sort of a, a sub-commissioner, yet an, another kind of layer there for drugs uh, and one for food. And then then everybody else would report up to that. Um, 
you know, one of the things you're talking about, um, some of the structural changes and, and, and the way that things work right now, how, why they're different. Well, it requires, you know, oh, it's, it's ORA, but it's really CIFSAN, and then they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. talks to the need for communication and cooperation for everybody. So, again, a clear mission and a clear delineation of, of responsibilities. Um, I, think, I think that structure is core. I mean, to not get into some of the other things that were highlighted in, in, in Helena's article that tends to be a little bit of office politics, kind of, but, you know, um, I think with a clear vision and, and uh, clear reporting, everybody there wants to do the right thing. I mean, it's not that FDA doesn't want to do the right thing, and they have a lot of um, competing interests, if you will, too. I mean, look, keeping industry... They get a lot of pressure from industry. Who you know, that's not a secret. Mm-hmm. Any 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 uh, federal agency is going to get a lot of uh, pressure from industry, and you have to balance those uh, needs to keep industry moving, to keep the food supply going. Um, what is uh, is an undue burden, mm-hmm. uh, and what is in the interest of public health? Mm-hmm. So. Um, I hope I hope this happens. I hope I hope these structural changes happen. Yeah, this is a clear case of what we talked about about culture earlier, and yeah. there was a number of things in the report that jumped out. You know, um, one is they point out in the report that everybody at the FDA that they talked to and interviewed with wants to do the right thing, wants to follow the rules, wants to pull in the right direction if we could. But because of the structure and the things that they're doing, they're just prevented from the communication. And, and unitary direction that they really need. Like one of the things, Adrian, you just mentioned was the reliance on consensus decisions. Um, I've been involved in organizations where it's nothing more frustrating than having a 9-2 vote over an issue and being deadlocked. You, know, you just can't move forward if you're going to do those things. Someone needs to come in and say, okay, listen, we have, we, we, we have enough to move forward. We're going to move forward with a 9-2 vote. But they talk throughout the entire report about uh, the culture, a shared identity for the program, having an effective overarching pro- program culture is difficult without those things. And it's all through this report. So this is a case study in culture. And like you mm-hmm. said, Stacey, the, the structure is going to help uh, push that culture. But at some point, you can fix the structure. But if you still have these other problems, you've got to get it to the point where everybody is, again, I, I, I like this term, so I use it all the time, but everybody's pulling in the same direction. And that, mm-hmm. that's not what was happening here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite parts from the summit of last year was during our uh, town hall, um, which is where uh, CDC, FDA, USDA, and uh, AFTO, uh, there was a panel. Uh, <laughs> and there was some talk of culture at FDA, and there was some pointed conversation <laughs> and people saying, well, I don't know if you've read, if anybody at FDA has read Frank's book. <laughs> There was a lot of poking going on. It was all very, um, it, it, it was in a great spirit right. of, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was fun. Right. Um, but, uh, but certainly some cultural changes. Uh, and, and when you're talking about the an agency the size of FDA and all, it, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so I, 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 hope that, uh, I hope that some positive change comes to this. But I also do think that this came out of the the infant formula crisis, the the high profile, the bombshell, Helena's bombshell. I think did did have an impact on this. Um, 
and then followed by um, uh, a uh, an op-ed by Mike Taylor, you know, f- a former FDA official who <laughs> has, certainly has standing to say um, FDA needs to have the food food needs to have its own. Um, uh, line of communication and, and its own authority reporting, uh, separate from drugs. Mm-hmm. Very important. Very important. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about the size of the FDA, so this Reagan Udall review was completed in a pretty timely manner of six months. But throwing another question out there for y'all, how long do you think it'll take FDA to implement the panel's recommendations? And, you know, who will be in charge of doing so, especially if the human foods program is as disorganized as this report seems to suggest? Do you give, Bob and Stacy, do you have any thoughts on that? Boy, I don't. <laughs> you allow me to use one of my favorite answers to any question. It depends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. E- even in the report, they talk about uh, the, the lawyerly response. The lawyerly <laughs> my response. My favorite. Well, it depends. <laughs> in the report, they point out about you know the different options that they recommend and what it would require to put. Uh, put these in place. Some of them are going to be difficult and 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 painful structure-wise to reorganize. Some of them are going to be take a really long time. Uh, the other thing is there's a question about whether or not re- this requires congressional approval or just congressional mm. notification. If it requires approval, it becomes political. We could be talking about this five years from now without anything happening. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting if this gets acted on or put on a shelf. And mm-hmm. we'll, that, that'll be something we can follow. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, just as kind of a summary question and a broad-based question, so in what ways is this going to be consequential for the operation of FDA as we know it right now? Because it's going to change, right? There's a lot of discussion about the FDA being too focused on on medical issues and with the FDA being very much weighted towards uh, medical devices and clinical studies and things like that. So it tends to crowd food out a bit. And even when you look at some of the uh, budgeting numbers in the, in the report, if I remember number, it's still as if food is, is waiting after medical devices and these other issues get, get dealt with before they get the kind of treatment that they ought to. So if it does turn out that food gets a higher profile and gets separated, it seems to me that if it's done right, that would be streamlined, which would be very good for food safety. But that's the first thing that would jump out to me, that that would be the biggest issue for us, um, what it does as far as the structure of the FDA and other areas. I mean, there's going to be unintended consequences all around, but I think it would be much better for food safety. Well, this just makes me think about, you know, people talk about the politicization of these things and... and um and, and what that means. And, you know, look, we're all familiar with how polarized things are. But I think at, in its essence, when you look at politics, it's people, it's, it's the will of the people. What are people concerned with? Is our government then responding to that appropriately? And so I think that w- one of the things is getting sort of, the, you know, and, and Congress's job is to, is oversight. So are they how one of the things that was pointed to was the number of hearings that that, that were held on on pharmaceutical issues versus food right. so are we starting to see some changes there where is pressure being uh, and attention being put i think where that attention and where that pressure is being applied you'll see change uh, come so i would encourage people hopefully you know cons- 
consumers, right, to continue to say that they care uh, about the safety and integrity of the foods that we eat. Uh, educating consumers, you know, we've talked about how hard that is. It, people, many people don't question where their food comes from. It comes from the refrigerated section. It comes from the shelf. It comes from, they don't really understand this. So as these things start to raise awareness, I think then we start to also see change, you know, uh, organic, um, non-GMO, all of these things, you know, people can go poo-poo, this and that, sustainability, all of these things, a consumer's awareness of food and what goes into our food systems and the implications of our food systems matter, educating consumers on all of this, which then also incorporates food safety. I, I think that will drive, that will drive change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let your elected representatives know. That's kind of big picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> yep. So as I say every time, there are going to be links. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> I hope there's enough like web <laughs> paper if there's such a thing. You better do some exercises, you guys. You're going to have some scrolling to do. I can't wait to, to link get all through the links <laughs> for all of the content that we have mentioned in today's show. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we also, here's where we remind you to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. And of course, if you want to take a deeper dive, you go to our website at food-safety.com. See, that wasn't actually even rehearsed, you guys. They didn't even know I was going to try and get them to do that. So. It was reflex. Pretty good. I was pretty good. Pretty good. I was impressed. And I can't even believe it. Oh, my goodness. We've done it. Adam always tells us there's no such thing as too long, just too boring. I hope it wasn't too boring. I, I hope we got through it. If you're listening to this, obviously, we, 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 met, that, we, 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 met, we met the bar. So thank you so much. Um, I want to take this moment, since it is our last episode of the year, to thank um, very special thanks to Adrian. You are such a pro. Thank you for all the en- excellent interviews that you do and an extra helping of thanks for that special September uh, coverage mm-hmm. that you lived through. You really pulled that one off. Uh, and to Bailey for all of uh, the great work that you do pulling together all the details for the stories that we cover uh, today, to, we covered today and, and in every episode. Bob. Fergie, (laughs) our not-so-secret weapon on the podcast. You bring so much to the table, and we we so appreciate your uh, expertise and that you actually, you like having fun with us. So that's, I have to admit, that's kind of my favorite part. (laughs) You're so much fun. Thank you you for all the time that you you spend with us. It does take a lot to bring all these episodes together, and and thank you for, for all your time. And Adam, Adam Haas, our never heard from but often referred to producer, um, thank you for your great ear and for all the support that you give us, making, uh, making us each better uh, each and every episode. Uh, and I have another special thanks to our editor, Drew Lockwood, who makes sure that our audience doesn't hear all of our mistakes, <laughs> uh, except for the fun ones that he sometimes pulls out and puts as our little uh, uh, Easter eggs at the end of, uh, of our episodes. And once again, to our audience, you guys are the absolute best. Uh, we really loved seeing you uh, at some of the shows again this year. We hope to meet 
If I could, I would love to meet all of you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your support. Um, Happy New Year, everyone. Our next regular episode will post on January 10th in the year of our Lord, 2023. (laughs) Oh, my God, here we come. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you. And we'll talk to you then.